But isn't it nice to know that even if we do things like that, we have a God we can go to and he'll bail us out of that. We can go to him with anything. That's what this song's about. It's called, I Came to Believe. By the way, this is Claire, my granddaughter. I'm Terry Howard. You see, we have a lot of visitors today. Here we go. I couldn't manage the problems I laid on myself And it just made it worse when I laid them on somebody else So I finally surrendered it all, brought down in despair I cried out for help and I felt the warm comforter there And I came to believe in a power much higher than I I came to believe that I needed help to get by In childlike faith, I gave in and gave him a try. And I came to believe in a power much higher than I. Childlike faith, I gave in and gave him a try. 
that I came to believe in a power much higher than I. Our scripture reading today is Numbers 23:21. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord his God with him, and the shout of a king is among them. Amen. Good morning, church. Happy Sabbath. So delighted to see all of you. I want to extend a warm welcome to everyone, uh, members and visitors alike. Um, it's a wonderful blessing to be here on this brisk morning. Uh, thank, big thank you to all of you who have participated in the service in some way. That's, it takes all of us, and so I'm so glad we have so many willing participants. Thank you for that special music and scripture reading and, and all the things that make a church service happen. So thank you all for your participation. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and let's get into our message. The title of the message today is called The Church Militant Part 1. There's a part two coming. That's what that means. All right, let's pray. Kind Father in heaven, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your many blessings. Thank you for always being with us and taking care of us. Thank you for your mercy and your grace that we learned about this morning in Sabbath school and will continue to learn about as we go through our sermon today. Uh, I just pray for your spirit to lead us and help us to be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is a very old sermon. I wrote this sermon preschool, not preschool, but pre, <laughs> not preschool, but pre-education, pre-university. How about that? Um, <laughs> I didn't think about how that was going to come out. <laughs> um, anyway, I wrote the sermon, I don't know, just a few years after joining the church. And uh, I'll tell you my experience and where it's coming from. Uh, when I was first really exposed to Adventism, I was living in Central America. I was living in Belize, kind of Belize, partly in Guatemala. And... Um, I had heard an evangelistic series, and it was the first time I had heard an evangelist uh, Seventh-day Adventist series, and so I was uh, intrigued by it, and I, there was many of the things that I already believed, like the Sabbath, um, the, the second coming, the mark of the beast, all those things I already believed prior to coming into the church. So it was like, wow, there's a church that believes all these things, so I was really excited about that. But simultaneously, at the same time, I was exposed to another church group who I found out, I, I'm not even going to say the name, but they were an offshoot church, a recognized church, an offshoot of Adventism. Um, and they claimed, you know, at the time, it was confusing to me at the time because they claimed to be the real remnant. They claimed to be the real church. 
and they were they they kept higher standards. They were like a holier group of people that God was preparing uh, right before Jesus came. And so I was like, well, who is it? What is it? And so I just kind of attended church there. I would bounce back and forth between the two churches because largely they were similar. And um, so that was my exposure there. When I came to the United States, there was just our church, just the Seventh-day Adventist church existed. This church has just a few thousand members worldwide, um, but they are an organized body of believers. And um, so... Obviously, I joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church, but some of their talking points still carried over with me, and I was watching for kind of the sins, or the they weren't even really sins when I think about it now. They were not actual sins. Um, it's not like the Seventh-day Adventist Church was leading people into sin and purposely trying to sabotage their life, um, but it was just lifestyle issues that they didn't believe they were quite keeping up with the standard. And so I was watching these things and I kind of was grappling with, well, are they right? Who's correct in this? Because it was all new to me. Um, And so I I wrestled with it. And after a couple of years of of kind of wrestling with God and and what was right and what was wrong, um, he he just kind of led me on this journey to where I am today. And that's what I'm going to talk about this next couple parts of the sermon um, let's go to our scripture reading. No, not our scripture reading. And this is, again, telltale of my pre-education sermon. We're going to kind of take a trip through several chapters where we're going to highlight a few verses from a few chapters in the book of Numbers. And um, I want to highlight a few things as I go through that. So um, we're dealing with Israel. We're going to start in Numbers chapter 11, but we're dealing with Israel. They've just celebrated the second Passover, so they've not been long out of Egypt. They've only been out of Egypt, you know, a little over a year. So they've just celebrated the second Passover. They're wandering in the wilderness, and um, we're going to go through some of their, their experiences together. Numbers chapter 11 And what I want to highlight through various things along the way is God's mercy, for one, and also I'll I'll get to a few other talking points as I go through. So let's go um, Numbers chapter 11, and I'm going to just begin reading in verse 1, just read a few verses for you. Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of them on the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So he called the name of the place Tabira, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. I want to go right to work defending God here. Um, The people are complaining about their circumstances. They're not happy with how things are going. They thought they were going to be in the land of milk and honey already. And, you know, you got to picture what's going on. So you've got this camp and you've got how is God leading them? Remember, his presence was always manifested in two ways, one of two ways. How was that happening? Pillar of fire by night. In the cloud by day. 
Um, and the cloud, you know, if you think about it, the heat, there might be a bent heat coming from the pillar of fire signifying the good shepherd keeping his people warm at night. And the cloud by day, they're in the desert, keeping them sheltered or cool during the day. Um, but God's presence was always manifest in some way. What happens to a sinful human being in the presence of God? Let's say there's high-handed rebellion in the presence of God. What's going to happen to them? I would venture to say they're going to be consumed. That's why there's always been a veil. That's why once Adam and Eve sinned, there was a separation that needed to happen so that we weren't automatically consumed. And so that's naturally what just happened in the camp. These people are in rebellion against God. They're complaining against God. And the, on the outskirts of the camp, uh, from maybe on the outside of the shadow of whatever was going on, there is some consuming that happens. Um, unfortunately. But God, his kind of his, I'll say, I'm not going to call it a sin, God can't sin, but God's, maybe his, it's not his problem, it's not his fault, but God's desire to be with his people is the problem here, okay? And the people are in we're going to find out all along the way, sometimes in open rebellion against God, sometimes they're just uh, they're, they're sinning against him in some way, and so there's a result that happens when they sin against God with him right there <laughs> in the pillar, visible right there. You can see him. Um, so I just want to make that known. We're going to see, we're going to see several places where the Bible writer is trying to convey this idea that uh, the Lord was angry. We're always going to see where Moses is interceding. We're always going to see him interceding. He is a Christ-like figure where whenever the people sin, he's interceding on their behalf. He is praying for them. He's praying for forgiveness. He's praying for cleansing. He is falling on his face. Let's turn over a page. Let's go to chapter 12. Chapter 12, we see, we're just going to highlight some of their lowlights. That's what I'm highlighting here all along the way, all their lowlights throughout the story. Chapter 12, we see issues even among the leadership. So the people have their problems, but even among the leadership, we find Miriam and Aaron kind of uh, saying, they say in, verse, in chapter 12, verse 1, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. So obviously he was in the desert when he married this woman. She was not an Israelite, so they're finding fault with him about that. So they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all the men who are on the face of the earth, and suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out, and then the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both went forward. And the Lord outlines his relationship with Moses. He says, Hear now my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly, and not talk and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? 
So the anger of the Lord was aroused against them, and he departed. And when he did, suddenly Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. Aaron and Miriam in this situation, there's some sort of squabble. It's a human pride issue. It happens a lot um, among leadership at any level. Um, But they're kind of saying, hey, why is the emphasis on him? Why is he the one who gets the kind of the sole leadership responsibility? Hasn't the Lord spoken through all of us? Are we not all his children? Don't we have some right to be able to be a part of this leadership council? The Lord makes it very clear quickly that that's not the case. The Lord has a roles and a hierarchy and a system in place. And he is speaking through Moses specifically, but Moses we're going to see as a type of Christ. He is an intercessor all along the way. And so Moses is being used in a special way. Um, But here's the nice part. Aaron and Miriam, immediately there's a sign of repentance. Somebody, maybe we could read the next line here. It says, verse 11, So Aaron said to Moses, Oh my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us, which we have done foolishly, in which we have sinned. Immediately there's this, uh-oh, that was the wrong thing to do. Immediately there's a recognition of sin. There's an, uh, an asking of repentance. Immediately there's recognition. And I'm harping on this because later with another group of people, that's not the case. So immediately there's recognition of sin. And the Lord, Moses cries out to the Lord in verse 13. Please heal her, O God, I pray. Moses has just experienced a personal attack from his own siblings who are supposed to be on his side. So there's issues here among the church and among leadership even. And Moses, being the type of Christ, he is praying for her because that's what Jesus does. He's our intercessor. He's praying for us, and he's willing to forgive. So Miriam is sent out of the camp, but because of the repentant nature, the repentant attitude of Aaron and Miriam, I believe they were saved. It's not so when there's very open rebellion later on. 13, 14, what happens? Spies are sent into Canaan. We know the story. Twelve of them go out. They say, hey, Go spy out the land. They come back with a good report or a bad report? Bad report, right? The Lord said, go take it. It's yours. I'm giving this to you. And they come back and they say, no, we can't. Why? Because the people are too, they're greater than we are. They're bigger people. Maybe there was more people, probably. And so they come back with this bad report However, there was two. Who were the two that were faithful that said, let's go and take it? Caleb and Joshua, right? They said, let's go, take it. And the rest of the people we find are not in favor. 14, so all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt. Or if only we had died in this wilderness, why has the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. And then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. Same story. 
Israel's not trusting God yet. They don't have that trust, trusting relationship, even though he's already, he's already parted the Red Sea. He's already led them out of slavery. He's already delivered them. He's redeemed them. But they're still, for whatever reason, uh, don't trust that when he says, hey, I'm giving this to you, go take it, they think, oh no, circumstantially, we can't do that. God has forgotten that the circumstances won't allow us to. They've forgotten that God's word has power to accomplish whatever he's asking them to do. The same is true for us today. Whatever God is asking us to do, there is power to accomplish in the word itself whatever it is he's asking us to do. And they forgot that. So they cry out. They're complaining. What's the story again? Moses is the intercessor. Moses is the one praying for them. Moses is the one interceding and saying, Lord, don't lay this sin on them. All along the way, there's covering for them. Let's keep going. We're just hitting some highlights before we get to our scripture reading because our scripture reading doesn't make any sense. 16. This is a really, this is a major low light here. The rebellion against Moses and Aaron. I'll go quickly through this. This is the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Actually, you know what? This is something I used to do when I used to read these long passages. I would have people in the congregation read it for me. But since we're on the mic and I didn't forewarn anybody, I'll just keep reading to my, for myself, for all of you. Follow along with me, if you would. Numbers chapter 16. Now Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, on the, and on and on, the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation and representatives of the congregation, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them. And and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Verse 4, when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. This is different than Moses, or sorry, than Miriam and Aaron. This is an all-out actual rebellion. They have gathered a number of people. There is other people involved. And the, the sinister nature of it is this exactly mimics uh, how Satan operated in heaven. He, he went about as a talebearer. He went about as a gossip or just garnering support as a politician and saying, hey, what this guy is doing, he's leading us to nowhere. So we need to, we need to take this thing over. It's like a military coup, if you will, where they are trying to actually overthrow and take over. This is on another level. This is a big deal. And um, this all-out rebellion against Moses is, is unlike anything he's experienced yet. Who's actually leading them? God is, right? So God is leading Israel, but Moses is the one who's taken the heat for it over and over again. He's just sitting there saying, I'm only doing what God asked me to do. That's a hard part as a leader a lot of times of a church where you're just like, when you might be dealing with the shots and you're just like, listen, I'm, I didn't, this is Moses' prayer and this is like, Lord, 
These are not my children. Why did you call me to do this? All they do is give me grief over and over and over again. And Moses is just pleading with them. He's like, I'm only doing what God asked me to do. And they're here and they, they are trying to essentially just take over the whole operation. And it's actually quite scary what we see happen here on the other side of it. Um, Moses hears it. He spoke to Korah, verse 5, in his company. Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and he will cause him to come near to him. And the one whom he chooses, he will cause to come near to him. God, Moses, in this situation, he said tomorrow we're going we're gonna to settle this. The whole goal of that 24-hour period was for repentance, to turn away from this evil plot that you have put together. So they have an opportunity to repent, to turn away from this, what they're doing. Um, even though they've seen these mighty manifestations of God all along the way, you for, we forget what all they've seen, and they're still rebellion, in rebellion against God, how God is leading them, or still in rebellion against Moses, how Moses is leading them. And so anyway, I've got to go fast here. So long story short, um, verse 15, Moses was very angry, said to the Lord, do not respect their offering. I have not taken one thing from them. I have not hurt them. I've not done anything to this group of people. And let's go here to verse 23. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the congregation saying, Get away from the tents of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. And they all moved away so that they wouldn't be a partaker of this sin. And 28, Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done this on my own will. If these men die naturally like all men, or if they are visited by the common fate of men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the earth, the Lord creates a new thing, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Now it came to pass when he finished speaking, the ground split apart and the earth opened its mouth and consumed everything that belonged to this rebellion. And even those priests who were holding censers in the name of the Lord, they were consumed by fire as well. This was a huge deal. This was a, an all-out orchestrated coup attempt on what God was doing, what, Moses was, what God had called Moses to do. And um, we see God doing an amazing thing there. But here's the amazing thing. On the next day, verse 41, on the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. The whole congregation was on their side. The whole congregation was wrong. The whole congregation was against God. The whole congregation was in rebellion. It's unbelievable to me. After all that they've seen, after all that they've witnessed. 
And they tell Moses and Aaron, you have killed the people of the Lord. Even though, I mean, the Lord, Moses made it very clear, the Lord is doing this. The Lord is going to show who is in charge, who are his chosen people and who are not. All right, last low light. I'm not even going to go through it. There's so many, we can't even, we can't even go through all of them. There's, every chapter contains something that the church of God is doing. This is God's church. These are God's people. It's not, it's not a, it's not a perfect group by any means. We don't see, we see nothing but error after error as we read through the book of Numbers. The last error I was going to point out, but I don't have time to, there's, there's many if you read through it all. Uh, but even Moses himself, you remember when the Lord, he had told, there was, again, they're complaining there's no water. So the Lord tells Moses, what does he tell him to do to the rock? He had already told him once to strike it and water would come out. So he has this meeting again with Moses and he tells him, this time I want you to speak to the rock and the water will come out. Moses finally gets to him all of this. You know, Moses, finally, we see his human nature coming out of him. And he goes from that meeting with God. I think this is in chapter 20 or 21. He goes from that meeting with God to just, we see anger coming out of him. And he says, hear now, you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? And he strikes the rock two times. Okay. Amazingly. Water still comes out. Amazingly, God still comes through. Amazingly, there's no real solid intercessor who is acting on God's behalf. God still comes through for the people who are complaining against him and for his leader who's just made a mistake. So if we, if we want to look at the character of God in all this, he could have left them hanging. He could have left everybody high and dry in that moment. He could have just said, you know what? I'm just, I'm done with this whole thing. Um, but he doesn't. I think that would have been a complete major death blow to the psyche of the people, for one. I mean, if, if water didn't come out and it didn't come out for Moses, we're all, we're all toast now. Um, so I think it would have been a major blow to their psyche, spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. But... Um, we see the character of God. Many times you'll read throughout the Old Testament where he is, he's, it's written in a language where people have thought that God is vengeful or hateful or whatever. If he ever had an opportunity to, to, to show that, it was right here. Because Moses doesn't do what he says and all the people are complaining against him. So if he was this vindictive, hateful God, he could have left them just right there. Okay, now's my chance to show my vindictive nature. But he doesn't do that. All right, so we've seen all these things. We've seen all these sins. We've seen all these problems. Um, let's go to the prophecy. Just a few chapters over, we'll go to chapter 23. And this is what I want to talk about. Um, we've seen the problems. We've seen the sins. We've seen the issues from leadership on down. One thing after another. As they're coming into the country of Moab, the king of Moab, Balak, he hires a 
local prophet. Balaam is some sort of seer, some sort of local prophet. Um, And God commissions him and he says, you can go, but you can only say what I tell you to say. You can only do or say what I tell you to do or to say. Okay? And so that's kind of the deal that Balaam makes with Balaam makes with God. And here's Balaam's first prophecy. As Balak has promised him great riches, Balak has promised him, hey, if you'll curse this people for me, then I will make you a very wealthy man. And Balaam warned him up front. He's like, listen, I can only do what God commissioned me to do or what he tells me to say. And Balaam takes up this oracle in Numbers chapter 23 and verse 7. And he took up this oracle and said, Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me from Aram, from the mountains of the east. Come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? From the top of the rocks I see him and from the hills I behold him. And there a people dwelling, not reckoning itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob? Or number one-fourth of Israel, let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. So this one's a little more vague. But he's saying, specifically, he's saying, God, how can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom God has not denounced? There's been lots of reasons why you would think God would along the way, but Balaam has been given a message of this is a holy, righteous people. He even says, let me die likening himself or wishing to be among their company. Let me die the death of the righteous. Let my end be like his. So this one is not as, this is not my critical point. The scripture reading is. Let's read the scripture reading together. Let's start in verse 19, Numbers chapter 19, or sorry, 23, 19, rather. Listen to this. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He is blessed and I cannot reverse it. Listen to this. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. Did you hear that? He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. You see, that was quite puzzling to me because I just got done reading all the rest of the chapter with you with all the way from chapter 1 to 23, and I'm looking at all the problems all along the way. And I'm going, how is God saying this about them? How is God saying about Israel that he hasn't seen wickedness or sin among them? How is that possible? The answer is in verse 23 where we just read. The Lord his God is with him, And the shout of a king is among them. Who is that king? Who is our king? Jesus. And somehow, with King Jesus in their lives, or with King Jesus covering them, God looks down and all he sees is the righteousness of Jesus. 
He doesn't see all that other stuff. He doesn't see the wickedness that we all saw. And so the same is true for you and me today. When we have King Jesus in our lives, God doesn't see all that stuff that happened in our past. God doesn't see all that stuff in the chapters that we don't want other people to read. God doesn't see or behold iniquity in them. I don't, it's unfathomable to me. It doesn't make any sense. Because we've seen nothing but problems all along the way. But when Christ is in and among them, God doesn't see any of that stuff. It's an amazing thing. It's, it's unfathomable from a human perspective. But when we have, you see, when I read the Bible, I just take that story, as I've said to you many times, and I apply it to my own life, and I think, well, if God, if I have Christ in my life, then that's how God sees me as well. He doesn't see all the garbage in the past. And as long as I'm walking with Him, and I'm desiring to do His will, as I've been talking about for the last several weeks, the new birth experience, we want to have Christ in our lives, The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. That king is King Jesus, and that's the only possible explanation for why God looks at them that way. When King Jesus is in your midst, God only sees you through the lens of Christ's righteousness. This is the church of God. This is God's church, fledgling church. And he's leading them. His righteousness is covering them. These people at various times all along the way committed grievous errors, some larger sins and some smaller. And or, uh, the organized rebellion, one could argue, it was the largest probably, and of all those Uh, rebels were consumed and swallowed. You know, we could think, well, well, all the rebels have been burned up by now, so that's why God only sees the righteousness of, you know, of Jesus. But you remember the whole congregation was crying the next day saying, you have, they were on the wrong side. They were completely in the wrong. But God is still covering them under the shelter of his wings. You could even think of like if you've, we've all, um, somebody's seen a picture of a hen with her chicks and they're all peering out from underneath. She's covering them. It's the same. That's why David used that, that metaphor, that analogy when he said, hiding me under the shelter of the shadow of your wings because he's covering his people. And the same is true for us today. I've always thought that it would be the worst to be Joshua and Caleb in this mixture. Can you imagine? You want to do the right thing. You know that God wants to take you into the promised land, but you've got to suffer through the 40 years with the rest of them. You've got to wander around and try not to be uh, resentful. They experienced Moses, Joshua, Caleb. They had the Spirit of Christ because the Spirit of Christ is one that doesn't seek to withdraw. This is my comparison among the churches because this church was telling me that we needed to come out and be separate from the sinful folk. I'm so glad that Jesus didn't do that for me. 
If anybody ever had a right to say, nope, I am too holy to intermingle with this group of beings, it was him. What did he do? He condescended and came down into our cesspool of an earth that we've turned it into in our cesspool of sin, and he came alongside us to show us a better way, ultimately dying at the hands of the people he was trying to save. That's the spirit of Christ. It's not we don't see God telling those three or four righteous people to come out and we'll, we'll just, you're going to be your own special group over here. No, they were there to work in the trenches and to be the example. They were there to be the intercessors. That's what we are all called upon to be, is whenever we see our brother or sister uh, failing in some way, Paul tells us, you who are spiritual, if someone is overtaken in a fault, you come alongside them and restore them. That's the spirit of Christ. Not come out, point your finger, and be separate because you're too holy to interact with that group. No, that's not what Jesus did, and that's not what we are called upon to do also. That, that, that other church situation makes no sense on a variety of levels, but I'm only going to talk about this this week. The church of God has always been composed of sinful, fallen people. Even in the time of Jesus, as far away from God as the main Jewish leaders were, they, they, had, they had turned everything into a business in the time of Jesus. It was like a Jewish mafia, basically. I mean, it was all about money. And so that's why him coming on the scene, it was, it was, a, it was a mess. And so they did, they, they did everything the right way on the outward, but behind the scenes, we don't see the Spirit of God at all. They're plotting to kill him. So we don't see the Spirit of God in them. But Jesus still, even in that time, whenever he would heal somebody, like a, a leper, they needed to be go to the priest, he still honored the system that was there. He wasn't, he wasn't pulling people apart for his own holy little group on the side. He was still honoring the system that was in place. He was still um, honoring the hierarchy that God had set up. Throughout our church history, offshoot groups have sprung up from time to time believing that the church had fallen and that they needed to start a new group. And believing that the church had fallen and was in error, um, certain people began to feel holier about themselves and that they needed to separate and come apart and, and be their own unique holy people. God has never called upon us to do any such thing. If now... If it is a fallen church system, we know, that, we know the history of that among the Christian church in which there was a coming out. There was a, a difference. But when the church is seeking to do the right thing, that's the church militant idea. The church is seeking to do the right thing. They're not leading their members into sin. They're not leading them to a for, false system of worship or a false uh, whatever you want to say. That's not the goal. Um, their, their, the desire is to do God's will, and we have imperfect people trying to do that. And so people uh, get caught up in the tiny little things along the way. The things I remember that they would highlight in this offshoot group, they were always lifestyle things. It was never actual sin. It was just their preference of lifestyle versus somebody else. And so they just started their own church based on that. And uh, it still exists. It's just a few thousand people globally, but it still exists. Now, 
in closing, um, let me figure out how to close this thing. This is nothing more when we see people and it gets into the church among church members. I, I haven't seen it here. This is for another situation that I'm dealing with. But when we see people pointing at the finger and the issues are not even about sin. It's not even about the direction of the church where it's sinful, but they're pointing out lifestyle issues that they think should be better, whether it's about diet, whether it's about clothing or dress. When we see people pointing the finger and saying this is incorrect or this is wrong, whose spirit are they actually manifesting? Who is the accuser? Who stands to accuse us? Okay, so we don't want to adopt or develop that spirit where we're pointing out and that's all that they did is watch for the errors in the church and that's all they would talk about. See, this is why it's fallen. This is why it's this. They're just all in error. They're doing it the wrong way. They're keeping the Sabbath wrong. They're dressing wrong. They're eating wrong. Everything was wrong and all they did was watch for errors. That is a satanic spirit all claiming to be righteous. That's what the Pharisees were. They, they were it was a satanic spirit under, the, and, and under this garb of righteousness. And Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. They were, they were nice on the outside, but inside they were full of dead men's bones, he said. Jesus has the opposite approach. If anybody, as I said, had a right to say, nope, I'm too holy to go there, I'm too holy to interact, it was Jesus. And that's not what he did. I praise God he didn't do that. I praise God that our God that we serve doesn't have those qualities that we see among people today. He came to our cesspool to show us how to live. The church militant is engaging, it's staying in the fight, but it's not perfect. I'm going to read this quote from Signs of the Times, and then I'm going to close. The church militant is not the church triumphant. It's different. The church militant is not the church triumphant. Just like my sinful carnal body is not my glorified body. The church militant, the church on earth, is not the church triumphant. And I like this part, and earth is not heaven. We're not there yet. People still fail. People still make mistakes. There's still tripping hazards all along the way in this sinful planet. Earth is not heaven. Okay? The church is composed of erring, imperfect men and women who are but learners in the school of Christ to be trained disciplined and educated for this life and for the future immortal life. This is just training. We're all making mistakes along the way. This process of sanctification is a process of a lifetime. So we have to have the Spirit of Christ where we're bearing along with people. We're being patient. Yeah, I mean, we open, open rebellion, obviously, purposefully leading us into sin. We can't deal with that. We can't tolerate that. But when it comes to our just day-to-day lives, trying to stay in the fight, trying to do what we're supposed to do to help our community in some way, and you got people standing on the side saying, oh, that's not the right way. You're doing it wrong. Can't do that. Nope, we're, we're, 
where we're not reflecting God the way that we're supposed to, that kind of stuff drives me crazy. And it's not the Spirit of Christ. How many want to be on Christ's side? How many want to have His Spirit covering your life? I, man, I can't tell you. That story, I, I really need Christ covering in my life. Let's pray and ask the Lord to cover us today. Kind Father in heaven, Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for your covering grace in our lives. We're so thankful for your mercy. We're so thankful for your precious promises that, Lord, when we come to you, you will cleanse us of all unrighteousness, that you will forgive our sins, and that you want to help us to live a better life. Lord, help us to be patient with the people around us. Help us to do your will. Help us to reflect Christ. Help us to reflect his character and his desire to help not to be not to be this condescending standoff spirit relationship but lord to be able to take people under our wing like you have done with us to help them we need you dear god to do this we can't do it in and of our own selves so please cover us, we pray. Lord, we want to we be seen through the lens of Jesus covering us, each one of us. So please, dear God, as we dedicate ourselves to you today and every day, Lord, continue to mold us and shape us into your image. Help us to be more like you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.